Dear Lord, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to be with us here today. Lord, please help me to speak your words and not my own. Help us to learn the truth and may we be forewarned and forearmed. Lord, we thank you for your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I put together this slide as kind of a summary, a way to kind of visually represent what we're going to be going through. Um, there's a lot of things represented here. Um, some of these things you may recognize, some of them you, you may not. Um, all of this goes into what's going on with the emergent church. Um, what we'll be talking about today is the theology of the emergent church. And it really goes back quite a ways. I could have started this presentation all the way back in the Garden of Eden or even before. And we'll bring a little bit of that in as we go. But mainly I'm looking at the 19th and the 20th centuries. And if you look at this slide here, you can kind of see the main themes that we'll be talking about. Uh, let's see how many of these things you can recognize. If you, if you look here, recognize this guy? That's Sigmund Freud with his glasses on up there. I guess it's a little hard to see the pointer here. And then here we have Karl Marx. And you know, one of the things that really got all this kicked off was good old Charles Darwin down here. And um, what's going on here is that Darwinism comes along, and out of Darwinism comes along the Enlightenment thinking. Well, actually, Darwin is after the Enlightenment, but, but building on the Enlightenment, building on the work of Darwin, you have the likes of Karl Marx. Same thing that comes along soon after that is Sigmund Freud, psychology. You know, that unleashed a firestorm upon the world. I have over here the French Revolution to represent the Enlightenment. I think it's important for us to remember, you know, as Americans, we're poorly educated in the French Revolution. We think oftentimes that the French Revolution is some kind of a continuation of the American Revolution. But you know, it's really not. The American Revolution, and I love talking about religious liberty and, and American freedoms and things like that, and I wish I was giving a presentation on that today, but... The American Revolution was based on the working out of Protestant principles and ideals in government. The French Revolution, in some ways, looks similar because they have this separation of church and state that the American Revolution had, except it wasn't really a separation of church and state. The French Revolution was more of a revolution against the church. And it's really the working out of atheistic principles and ideals. And so it's a very different thing than the, Protestant, than the Protestant ideals that were worked out in our country. And so from these Enlightenment ideals, you have these, these great thinkers. But then from there, we moved on, and, and things, things moved on. And, and I have represented here the New Age movement. If any of you have studied the New Age movement, what I'm going to say today may not be as unique or exciting. Or maybe, it just may be some little bit of old hat. And, you know, out of all of that, we have, like, the hippie movement and the free love movement. All of these things are intertwined and related. And Vatican II comes along and adopts much of this, and it creates a situation where, where ecumenicism is big and works with the Catholic theology. And they adopt a lot of these different ideas. But we'll eventually get to talk a little bit about Kellogg and uh, how he relates to all of this. But probably the most important 
picture I put up there is the one in the top corner there. You see that Bible? That's a Bible, and it's all torn up. And the reason why I put that there, that represents higher criticism. And if you look at what's going on with the emergent church, if there's one thing that's at the core of the emergent church, it's higher criticism. Because you have to do away with the Bible as a clear, thus saith the Lord, in order for any of this to go forward. So anyway, these are the subjects, the big subjects that we'll be talking about. Ellen White had this to say, As in the days of the apostles, men tried by tradition and philosophy to destroy faith in the scriptures. So today, by the pleasing sentiments of higher criticism, evolution, spiritualism, theosophy, and pantheism, the enemy of righteousness is seeking to lead souls into forbidden paths. This is truly the world that we live in today. It's from Acts of the Apostles. To many, the Bible is as a lamp without oil, because they have turned their minds into channels of speculative belief that bring misunderstanding and confusion. The work of higher, system, higher criticism is dissecting, conjecturing, reconstructing, is destroying faith in the Bible as a divine revelation. It is robbing God's word of power to control, uplift, and inspire human lives. I think it's worth to take just a moment to remind ourselves what higher criticism is, how it got started. It got started over in Europe at a place, the uh, University of Tübingen. And at this location, the, uh, the academics said, you know, we don't believe in the supernatural anymore. And so they attempted to read the Bible as a book that was, every time it talked about anything supernatural, well, then that was kind of like a fairy tale. And so, as you read the Bible more and more, you start to realize that it's all about God working with man. And the supernatural is throughout. And what higher criticism did is it started taking bits and pieces out here and there, and before it was all done, it had basically robbed almost the entire word of, of any meaning, of anything more than some kind of a myth or a fairy tale. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 16, I want to read a text here. Revelation chapter 16, and we'll be looking at verses 13 and 14. And the Bible says this, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So, I'm guessing most of us are good Adventists here. We should be able to answer this question. What is the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet? The dragon? Satan, or paganism. The beast? Papal power, the papacy, right? And the false prophet being apostate Protestantism. And if you look at this passage here, there's kind of a false trinity made by these three characters. And if you look at these frogs, let's look at the frogs for a second. Three unclean spirits like frogs. Well, it's sort of a counterfeit three angels message. And you look at the frogs, they're all the same. We don't get any description of them being one different from the other. And I believe it's proper to read this as, as this false trinity. They're all saying the same thing together. 
And then looking on, reading verse 14, it says this, For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So just as the three angels are sent out to gather God's people and bring them together, these three frogs, these three spirits, are sent out to deceive and to bring Satan's people together. Now, as I was looking at this and thinking about this, there's three frogs, and they all look the same. There's no difference. And they're coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. They have a message. And so as I was looking at this, I started to realize, you know, if you can find something that the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet are all saying, you may be looking at those frogs. And I believe with what's going on in the emergent church today, I truly believe that what we're seeing is the beginning of the fulfillment of this prophecy right here. And so with that, let's keep going along. I'd like to start with a man by the name of Jürgen Moltmann. Jürgen Moltmann's a Protestant. Um, he's a professor emeritus of systematic theology at the University of Tübingen. Uh, interesting. Um, Jürgen Moltmann is one of the favorite theologians of the emergent movement. And I'd like to just introduce a little bit of his theology to you today. Um, a little bit more about him. He's made significant contributions to a number of areas of Christian theology, including systematic theology, eschatology, and the theology of creation. Now, if you look at those three things, those are really big and actually near and dear to Seventh-day Adventists. As Seventh-day Adventists, we probably have one of the most um, well-developed systematic theology of any denomination. And, you know, systematic theology, that's one of those big words. What does it mean? Well, a systematic theology is a theology that kind of gives you that big overarching picture. It's that big paradigm that all of your theology fits into. And as Seventh-day Adventists, we have a couple of those. The great controversy, the sanctuary. These are big systematic theologies. Now, this guy is an expert in systematic theology. Eschatology, what is that? In time events. That's right in our name, right? Adventism, right? And the theology of creation. Origins and the Sabbath. I mean, the Sabbath is all about creation. Well, let's look and see who he's influenced by. He's heavily influenced by Hegel's philosophy of history. Hegel's a late Enlightenment thinker. We'll be, we'll be talking about him. The Frankfurt School. Now, the Frankfurt School is really interesting. Have you heard of the Frankfurt School here? The interesting thing about the Frankfurt School is they're Marxists. But unlike the Marxists that took power in Russia, the Frankfurt School believed in nonviolence and slow, gradual change. And for that reason, there was a split with them and the regular Marxists, and they were forced west. And so they went to Frankfurt. And then later on, when war broke out, some of them came to the United States. And what's really interesting is if you study the history of the sexual revolution, that's really masterminded by the Frankfurt School. But they believed that Marxism could take the world gradually. And the sad thing is, as we've seen now, looking at what's going on in the world around us, they've been largely successful. So he's influenced by them. He was influenced by Ernest Bloch's philosophy of hope, another Marxist. And you're going to see when you see these emergents that they're big into hope. Hope is something that, that plays a, a, a big role in them. 
and he developed his own form of liberation theology. This guy's a real, real contradiction in a lot of stuff because liberation theology is a Marxist theology that mainly occurred in Central and South America, at least that's where I'm most familiar with, and it actually believed in using violence. So, anyway, what does Moltmann have to say? Listen to this. He says this. The atheism that wants to free men and women from superstition and idolatry and the Christianity that wants to lead them out of inward and outward slavery into the liberty of the coming kingdom of God. So atheism and Christianity. These two don't have to be antagonists. They can also work together. Which of them will prove to be stronger in the long run is something we may confidently leave to the future. This guy has a radical theology. If you ask me, it's a very, very scary one. So anyway, he was influenced by Hegel. Let's learn a little bit about Hegel. Hegel's a German philosopher. He revolutionized European philosophy. He's influential to Marxism as well as other branches of continental philosophy. Maurice Morleau-Ponté wrote that all great philosophical ideas of the past century the philosophies of Marx and Nietzsche, phenomenology. Now, I have to make a, a, uh, an apology. In this presentation, we're going to get a lot of big words that you probably don't understand. I know I certainly didn't understand it as I was going into this. And I'm going to try to explain them all as we go. Phenomenology. That's the study of what makes you a person. Why is it that you have a personality? What, what is it about it that gives you thoughts? And, and lets you know you're you and you're not your neighbor and we're not a machine. It's the difference between being a robot and a person. So, anyway, this guy influenced philosophies of Marx and Nietzsche, phenomenology, German existentialism, and psychoanalysis. They had their beginnings in Hegel. Well, what's really important for us today is this idea of the Hegelian dialectic. Um, it's from this, actually. Have you heard the idea that truth is relative? Really, this is where the idea actually comes from, that all truth is relative. And this is his idea. He believed that you would have a thesis and an antithesis, two different ideas that don't get along very well, and uh, that would then become a synthesis. And so these two ideas would fight with each other, and then there would be a result and an outcome, which would be a synthesis. So let's try to see that in, um, in, in a practical example. So one of the things that happened during the Industrial Revolution was that machines increased productivity. Well, that means machines take away jobs. And so we have all this wonderful productivity. People can actually leave the farm. They can come to the city. But we've got a problem because there's not enough jobs to go around. And this actually happened as, as the Industrial Revolution really came through and the Ag Revolution came through and, and technology came, we started to have this problem of not enough work. And so humanity changed. And one of the ways that they changed it was we shortened the work week and we shortened the hours. People don't have to work as much. And prior to the... Uh, to the economic downturn that we had in 2008, the French were seriously talking about taking away another day because productivity had increased. And so you have these two different ideas, two different problems that, that working together then um, come up with a solution. 
Now, I have this here. I'm not sure that this is how we got to it, but let's, let's play with this. Play with this concept a little bit. I have a confession to make. I used to be involved in politics. And when I was involved in politics, we used what we understood about the Hegelian dialectic. And what we would do, I was involved in a, in a big dispute over land use in, in the city of Loma Linda. And eventually we came to an agreement, the two different opposition parties. But we'd come to an agreement, and we'd spent a lot of time working it out. But the public hadn't yet. And we were in the midst of a big fight, and we needed to bring the public on board. And so what we did was we said, okay, this is our solution. And we actually sat there and said, okay, if we want to get to this solution publicly, how are we going to get there? Where are you going to start in the debate? And where am I going to start in the debate? And how are we going to do this? And we kind of orchestrated it all out. It was really interesting for me to see this. I'm all like, wow, is this the way politics really works? Um, but anyway, the idea is, is that you can start with your solution and then you can figure out the starting points you need to get to that solution. And so I've done an example of it here in the theological um, realm, and I'm not sure that this is how, this, how, we, how we came to this point or anyone came to this point, but I just use this by way of example, and that is the idea of universalism. Universalism is the idea that everyone is saved and no one is lost. Well, how would you get there? And I just pose this as, as one possibility. Well, you start off with one lie, eternal hellfire, the idea that everyone who is lost burns forever in hell. Well, that doesn't really seem fair. And when you think about God, and God is a God of unlimited love. And so if God is a God of unlimited love, and if hellfire is truly eternal, a forever torturing for just a lifetime of sin, then maybe no one is lost. And so this would be one way to work it backwards into universalism instead of just telling the truth. Ellen White had this to say, What a terrible deception is upon the minds of those who think the world is growing better. You see, this whole project of Hegel and Marx was to make the world grow better, at least according to their, to their thinking. Turn with me to Colossians. I want to read a text here. Colossians 2, verse 8. The Bible tells us this, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. The Bible gives us all the warnings that we need. Amen? So what's the Immersion Church all about? Um, I want to introduce you to this idea. It's called the Great Chain of Being. This is an ancient pagan philosophy. Um, I really don't know how far it goes back, but this particular representation I, I got from a book uh, published in 1579. It's a drawing of the Great Chain of Being from Didacus Velatus Rhetorica Christiana. Now, I can't read Latin, but I can figure that out enough. Rhetoric. Uh, Christian rhetoric is what that obviously means. I got this when I was listening to a, a man by the name of Ken Wilber. He's a Buddhist. I'll tell you a little bit more about him in a, in a minute. But this is, this is truly where emergent comes from. Um, it's based on a medieval pagan philosophy. 
what's going on with this? How does this work with the Hegelian thing? Well, you see, we live in a world that's got a problem. And the problem is, is that you've got spirituality. You see, we're all spiritual beings, and we all know that we're spiritual. But you also have atheistic, materialistic determinism. You know, you know the, the whole evolution thing, where there is no God, there is no spiritual. Now, if you put your Hegelian thinking cap on, these two ideas have to compete with each other, right? And we we're taught that both ideas are actually true. We know we're spiritual and we're taught to be atheistic. So what's the solution? What do you get? Well, it's evolutionary spirituality or the real terminology is emergent spirituality. So how does that work? How does that work? Well, if you look at this great chain of being, at the very bottom you see Baphomet. And then you move up through different levels as we go up, and God is there at the top. So how does that work? What does that mean? Well, this is what the emergence will tell you it's all about. First, you start with the Big Bang. You have the evolution of matter. And then from there, you have the origin of life. Sounds like Darwinism, right? Higher life forms, and from there, primitive man. Well, what's next on the chart? Spiritual man. And then finally, God, divine consciousness emerging. You see, they've taken this thinking about evolution and they've applied it all the way into the spiritual realms, all the way up to God. This is the logical working out of the entire theory of evolution. It doesn't work. There's so many reasons why, even by their own quote, scientific reasoning, it just isn't possible, and we just know that it isn't true. I pulled this from a spiritualistic um, website. It was interesting. There was a spiritualist, actually a Satanist, that was suing one of my clients. And as I was doing my little work uh, on my case and trying to figure out what makes this guy tick and everything like that, I was looking at, at some web pages that he had, and um, I actually found this there. But this very clearly represents what's going on with their entire thinking, and we'll see more as we, as we go. Um, here you see uh, a chart with all the different major religious traditions represented there, and I'm not quite sure what they all mean, but you see Christianity there, and you see Judaism, and you see Hinduism, and, and um, uh, Islam, uh, Buddhism, they're all there, and they're shown on the outer area of the chart is the exoteric, or that would be the, the outward, the official, what, what we tell the world. And then you move in the chart to the esoteric. And esoteric is the secret. This is, this is something that only the initiated get to know about. Now it's interesting because all of these different religious tra traditions, they all have an exoteric. I mean, they all do. That's, that's how we know what the traditions are and where they are. But as I've studied and learned, I realized that they all have an esoteric too, an, an inner circle. Now, I don't believe true Christianity has that, but certainly false Christianity does. And we'll be talking about that. But, you know, all the other ones have it. Buddhism has it. I didn't really believe that, but I was lucky enough to visit in China. And, you know, the communists, they don't really like religion very well, and so they don't try to keep the secrets. 
and I went to this really interesting museum on esoteric Buddhism. And wow, it was, a, it was an eye-opener to me. Um, Islam has it. Um, if you've heard of Sufism, that's the esoteric Islam. And this is where they do a lot of meditation and things like that. Um, Judaism has it. Um, some of the different Jewish traditions, I'm not quite sure which ones, if it's Hasidism, um, but there's, there's this element of this, this mystical in it. And if you look at this chart, it's really interesting. You have the exoteric followed by the esoteric, but what's at the center of it all? They say truth is at the center of it all. If you listen to what the people are saying in the emergent movement, they're talking about how every religious tradition can come together. And the way they come together is through their mystical practices. And it's very interesting because you can put a Buddhist in a room with a Catholic in the room or a Protestant, and they'll start talking about meditation. They're alive today, so you can see this on YouTube. I'm not saying that you want to do that, but I've seen it. And they'll be gushing, saying how much they all agree with each other. They can't say enough about how much they agree. And so what I realize, what I'm seeing here, is the ultimate ecumenical movement. You know, when I think of the ecumenical movement, I mainly think of different sects of Christianity coming together with Catholicism. But really, what's happening here is all of the different religious traditions are able to come together. And I think about the Bible verse, and the whole world wandered after the beast. And they all believe they're coming together to the same truth. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And here we are introduced to the first lies of the devil. I say lies because I think sometimes we can focus in too much on, on one or the other. But Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. One of the big lies, if you listen carefully to what's being said in this movement, is that ye shall be as gods the divine within. And this is nothing new. I mean, we've all seen this in the New Age movement. We've seen it throughout paganism. But now this teaching is coming in. And so you see all the different lies of the devil here at the garden. You shall not surely die. Your eyes shall be opened. Remember? They move through the mysticism to that one ultimate truth. They're talking about opening of the eyes. And then ye shall be as gods, the inner divine. Ellen White says this, And to complete his work, he declares to the spirits that true knowledge places men above all law and that whatever is, is right, that God doth not condemn and that all sins which are committed are innocent. This is the teachings that are coming into the church today. So we've seen Moltmann, 
Now let's look at the beast. Pierre Tilhard de Chardin. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name. Uh, I'll have to figure it out and get it right one of these days. He's a French philosopher and a Jesuit priest who trained as a paleontologist and geologist and took part in the discovery of Peking Man. Peking Man. What's Peking Man? This is really interesting. He's also, now this is from Wikipedia, and it's interesting. They give him credit for taking part of Peking Man. But we really ought to know that he also took part in Piltdown Man. He was studying underneath a, uh, uh, another paleontologist um, when Piltdown Man was discovered. Now, Piltdown Man was supposedly the missing link. And so is Peking Man. These are both missing links between man and ape. The interesting thing about Piltdown Man is that people were looking at it as time went by and they realized, you know, I don't think this is the missing link. I think that's a human skull and an orangutan jawbone. And so the whole thing was a big fraud and a big fiasco. Peking Man was another one of these missing links that was found. But you know what's interesting about Peking Man? No one can find Peking Man today. He's disappeared. I wonder why. So anyway, he's a paleontologist and a geologist. He conceived the idea of the omega point, a maximum level of complexity and consciousness towards which he believed the universe was evolving. Remember our emergent church evolving? Let's look what he said. A little bit more about him first. In his posthumously published book, The Phenomenon of Man. Now, most of his works are posthumously published because at his time, he was a little too radical for the Catholic Church and the Pope asked him not to publish. So in The Phenomenon of Man, Teilhard writes of the unfolding of the material cosmos from primordial particles to the development of life, human beings, and the conscious thought. And finally, to his vision of the omega point in the future, which was pulling all creation towards it. He says this, This cosmic body of Christ extends throughout the universe and comprises all things that attain their fulfillment in Christ, so that the body of Christ is the one single thing that is being made in creation. Teilhard describes this cosmic amassing of Christ as Christogenesis. According to Teilhard, the universe is engaged in Christogenesis as it evolves towards its full realization at Omega, a point which coincides with the fully realized Christ. It is at this point that God will be all in all. He's an expert at misquoting Scripture. But look at what he's talking about. He's talking about the entire universe evolving into this Omega point and the entire universe becoming the body of Christ. That's pantheism. Teilhard was praised by Pope Benedict XVI, and July 2009, Vatican spokesman Friar Federico Lombardi said, by now no one would dream of saying that Teilhard is a heterodox author who shouldn't be studied. Remember, he was told not to publish, but now he's fully accepted. And this is like current stuff. He was noted for his contributions to theology in Pope Francis's 2015 encyclical Laudato Si. I mean, this is current stuff. I'm not uh, quoting some obscure Catholic thinker here. Listen to what he says, though. Our century is probably, he's talking about the 20th century, more religious than any other. How could it fail to be with such problems to be solved? 
The only trouble is that it has not yet found a God it can adore. Oh my word. Amazing. He must not know Christ. Ellen White says this, especially should we entreat the Lord for wisdom to understand his word. Here are revealed the wiles of the tempter and the means by which he may be successfully resisted. Satan is an expert in quoting scripture, placing his own interpretation upon passages by which he hopes to cause us to stumble. We should study the Bible with humility of heart, never losing sight of our dependence upon God. While we must constantly guard against the devices of Satan, we should pray in faith continually, lead us not into temptation. Amen? Okay, moving on now to the pagan. Um, this is Ken Wilber. He's born in Oklahoma. He's an American Neoplatonic writer, but he's a Buddhist and a public speaker. He has written lectured about mysticism, philosophy, ecology, and developmental psychology. His work formulates what he calls integral theory. He's heavily influenced by Buddhist gurus and mystics, mystics like Aldous Huxley, Huxley is known for his interest in parapsychology, interest in Eastern religion, belief in universalism, and use of psychedelic drugs. Bill Clinton, Al Gore, and Deepak Chopra have mentioned Wilbur's influence. And if you want, you can go online and you can listen to this guy talk, and he'll even tell you as you're doing your meditation, it's not a bad idea if you need a little help to use a little drugs. Um, Rob Bell, um, one of the big leaders in the Emergent Church, said this, for a mind-blowing introduction to emergence theory and divine creativity, set aside three months and read Ken Wilber's A Brief History of Everything. And he's the guy um, where I stumbled upon this idea of the great chain of being. I was listening to one of his lectures, and I realized, and he even said so, that he was basing much of his philosophy on the, quotes, Christian, which is the old pagan philosophy of this great chain of being. Let's see what he says. Are the mystics and the sages insane? Because they all tell variations on the same story, don't they? Maybe the evolutionary sequence really is from matter to body to mind to soul to spirit. Each transcending and including, each with a greater depth of greater consciousness and wider embrace. And in the highest reaches of evolution, maybe, just maybe, an individual's consciousness does indeed touch infinity. A total embrace of the entire cosmos a cosmic consciousness that is spirit awakened to its own true nature. It's at least plausible, or so he says. This sounds just like Chardin. He's saying the exact same thing, is he not? Let's move on now. I want to talk a little bit about the people that are the actual movers and shakers in the emergent church. Those folks that we talked about now that we just covered, these are more like the real philosophers, um, but they're not truly the leaders. You know, you have the philosophers at the top thinking the great thoughts, and then you have people that are out in the street that are actually interacting with the people. And these are the people that you will find just listed as emergents if you go and look on, um, on Wikipedia. So Tony Jones, he's an American theological provocateur, an author, a blogger, and speaker who's a leading figure in the emergent church movement and postmodern Christianity. I want to point out something here. He says he's a theological provocateur. These guys love to play with the language, and they love to be provocative. And so he can't just be a preacher. He can't just be a pastor. He's a provocateur. But there's something else that you're going to see as we go through this, is that the kinds of language and the kinds of, of titles they like to take, they're very much social justice warriors. We'll see that as we progress. 
He says this about the emergent church movement. He says, so I've poked around trying to figure out exactly what's going on in the emerging church. If there's one core conviction that I can put my finger on, it's an eschatology of hope. What I mean is that the folks who hang around the emerging church tend to see goodness and light in God's future, not darkness and gnashing of teeth, rejecting the view that we're in a downward spiral, and when things down here become bad enough, Jesus will will return in glory. You see, he's got a different philosophy, a different understanding of end-time events. He says this, God's promised future is good, and it awaits us, beckoning us forward. We are caught in a tractor beam of redemption and recreation, and there's no sense fighting it, so we might as well cooperate. Remember what Chardin said about us being pulled into that future? He's got the same idea here. And I'm going to start pointing out some things here. You see, we're caught in this tractor beam of redemption and recreation. Well, if you look at what they're talking about, you're going to see a lot of times it's become really uh, common in the emergent church movement to put a re in front of anything. So you can have recreation. You can have re-anything. We'll see uh, some more of that as we go. But the idea that they're saying is is that we're co-creators with God and we're recreating the world with Him. It's actually making us more the divine within. This is going on, he says this, hope-filled belief generally leads emergent Christians to reject eschatologies that end in a disastrous end of the cosmos. You see, he doesn't believe in that judgment day when the heavens are rolled back and Christ returns. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians. One of those little books that you have a tendency to go right by. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It says this, Paul's writing to the Christians, but of the times and of the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. You know, if you were listening to what he said, um, Tony Jones, he's saying that that we're being pulled into this goodness and light. What is that? That's saying peace and safety. So when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction. Verse 4, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all children of the light, and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of the darkness. And believe me, we should not be preaching peace, and safety. Moving on, Doug Paget. He's another leader in the emergent church. He's an author associated with the emerging church movement and founding pastor of Solomon's Porch in South Minneapolis. He's also a senior fellow with Emergent Village, a generative friendship of missional church leaders around the world and the leading architect of the emergent church discussion. So we got some strange words here again. We got missional. I'll just tell you right now, they're big on missional. And missional is the idea, the best way to describe it is, is to compare it to missionary. If we're a missionary, what do we do? 
Christ's method alone, right? You go out, you mingle with the people, you do good for them. If you look at the missionary movement around the world, when we were doing foreign missions, what do you do? You go out into a foreign land, you treat the people's needs, but then you show them Christ. You lead them to Christ. But then President Kennedy came along and he started something called the Peace Corps. And the Peace Corps is actually the perfect embodiment of missional. It's still going out to the world and doing good for them. But you don't lead anyone to Christ. You don't lead them on a spiritual path. That's what missional is. It's mission without the missionary. Another thing I'd like to point out, too, is that you may run into people who say, well, I'm not emergent, I'm emergence. Or I'm part of the emergent village, I'm not part of the emergent church. You're going to see this as we go along here, uh, slight variations on this. Well, look, I'm here to tell you something. Words have meaning. And people will say things like this to try to get out of this and that or the other thing. But as I've studied this movement, everybody's cut from the same cloth. And don't let fine distinctions trip you up as you're talking about and thinking about this. So Doug Padgett has this to say. He says, God is constantly creating anew. And God also invites us to be recreated and join the works as co-recreators. Now, I didn't mess with what he wrote. That's the way he wrote it. And you can see you got that, that re in there and the co. I mean, they play with the language a lot. He says this, Imagine the kingdom of God is the creative process of God re-engaging in all that we know and experience. When we employ creativity to make this world better, we participate with God in the recreation of the world. Remember, they're trying to make this a better place. He says this, progressional dialogue. Progressional dialogue. Remember Hegel? What was that? You have two different ideas working against each other, coming up with a new solution. This is the progressional dialogue he's talking about. Progressional dialogue, on the other hand, involves the intentional interplay of multiple viewpoints that leads to un unexpected and unforeseen ideas or new synthesis. The message will change depending upon who is present and who says what. So it's important who you invite to the conversation. Now think about that for a second as Christians. Because we as Christians have something here called the Bible. And the Bible is a clear, thus saith the Lord. And it's never changing. That isn't real useful in progressional dialogue. And Mr. Padgett recognizes that. And he says this, The contemporary church makes two mistakes regarding the function and relationship of the Bible. Oh, and I hate the language he uses. One is to think of her as a stagnant telling of all the desires of God. Look, there is nothing stagnant about this. But I will say this, it is never changing, amen? One is to think of her as a stagnant telling of the desires of God. The other is to think of her as something from which we extract truth, whether in the form of moral teaching or propositional statements. So that means that the Bible is not the place where you go to get truth. They're trying to get truth through this progressional dialogue. 
I use this as an example to get you to understand how they work. This is one of those things where I'm going to read this, and oh boy, it's tough. But I'm going to teach you how to even read tough sentences that you can't fully understand. Um, this is from a, a book about the emergent church, um, written by people who, who, who are members of it. And listen to what they say about Scripture. We read knowing the Spirit speaks through Scripture, appropriating the text so as to create a communal world through it. While the world the Spirit fashions is specific to our situation and hence is not merely a transplanting of the world of the text into the present, the Spirit-constructed world we inhabit is nevertheless shaped by the world disclosed in the text. Our world is to be the contemporary embodiment of the paradigmatic narrative of Scripture constructed through the interpretive framework that emerges from the Bible as a whole. How many of you understood that? <laughs> okay, I didn't, and I still don't understand it, but we can figure some things out. They read the script, appropriating the text. What does it mean to appropriate something? That's a euphemism, actually, for stealing. If you say, I appropriated your car. <laughs> so they take the text for themselves. And then they're going to create a communal world. So they're big into community. So take the text for yourself. We'll create our own world. Well, the world the Spirit fashions is specific to our situation. So it's specific to the situation. That's like situational ethics, if you know anything about that. So it's not a grand universal. It's, it's for here. And hence, it's not merely a transplanting of the world of the text into the present. So they're saying, don't go back and look at the past, because we're not transplanting anything from the past. So it doesn't... It doesn't really necessarily matter what Christ meant the day he said it. Into the present, the spirit-constructed world we inhabit is nevertheless shaped by the world disclosed in the text. So, so the Bible does shape us. It does, it does change us. Our world is to be the contemporary, contemporary embodiment of the paradigmatic narrative. So this is a paradigmatic narrative. Okay, it's a fairy tale that sets the paradigm. That's what higher criticism tells us. It's the paradigmatic narrative of Scripture constructed through the interpretive framework that emerges from the Bible as a whole. About the only positive thing that I can say about them is they at least use the word Bible as a whole. But they have torn so much of what Scripture is out of it that I'm not sure they're talking about the same Bible anymore. Listen here. Let's look at 2 Peter. I want to read a text here. 2 Peter. Chapter 3. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by ways of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. These folks are scoffers saying, where is the promise of His coming? What have they said? They're not looking for a second coming. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. I, I love the Bible. I mean, it nailed it. It's so prophetic. This is uniformitarianism. This is one of the foundations of evolutionary thought. For this they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. They're ignorant of the creation. Whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished, but the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. 
They deny all of this. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, some men count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Amen. So, we got a problem here. Are these people atheists or theists? It's kind of hard to answer the question, actually. And it's just going to get harder. I want to point to this guy. I think he's really interesting. The guy, Barry Taylor. Um, <clears throat> he's an associate rector at All Saints Episcopal Church in Beverly Hills. He teaches theology and culture at Fuller Theological Seminary. Interesting combo here. And he teaches advertising and design at Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. So he's at a theological school, Fuller, which is sadly a place where we send some of our Adventists to get their degrees, and the Art Center of, Co of, of Design in, in Pasadena. Uh, topics that were part of his theological doctoral study program. So he'll teach you how to market your church, among other things. Listen to what he says. He says, we live in a post-Nietzschean world of faith and spirituality. Nietzsche's declaration that God is dead still holds true since interest in all things spiritual does not necessarily translate to a belief in a metaphysical God or tenets and dogmas of a particular faith. Nietzsche's declaration that God is dead still holds? And Nietzsche's the philosopher who went around saying God is dead. You killed him. And what he meant by that, he says, you guys are all atheists. By your atheist belief and what you've proven with your atheism, God is dead. And he also said, if God is dead, live like it. You're all living moral lives still, at least too much for him. And so he wanted him to live like God is dead. But listen to what this guy says. He says, Nietzsche's still right. And then he says this, God is nowhere. God is now here. God is present. God is absent. Look at what he did with that statement. They love to play. God is nowhere. God is now here. All he did was move the space. The future of faith rests in the tension between these words, and it is from this place of discomfort and complexity that new life emerges. This is Moltmann, right? Moltmann says, we don't know, Christianity or atheism, they're going to compete, and then we'll eventually, we'll see something's going to emerge, right? He went on to say this, when discussing the conversion of African slaves to Christianity, W.E.B. Dubois argued that Africans did not convert to Christianity, but rather converted Christianity to the basic themes rhythms and interests of African religion. Now the sad thing is, is that they're a little bit right about this. When the Africans came, what did they bring with them? They brought their music. And that music was not good. And now we see that music invading our churches. In considering the future of Christian faith in the 21st century, I find this idea of reverse conversion to be really helpful. Now wait a second. Reverse conversion... I think we actually have a word for that. It's called apostasy. But he just doesn't want to use that word. He says this, we need a conversion of sorts, a reverse conversion or an apostasy to the themes, rhythms, and interests of post-secular Western culture. This is where the emergent church is moving. They want to get involved with the culture. And we see that in our churches today. Whether Christianity has any future at all as a vibrant expression of faith in the man from Galilee is a matter of debate as far as I'm concerned. Wow! This guy doesn't seem to be a real believer. And yet he's teaching at Fuller Theological Seminary. This is from a forward to one of his books. 
The Rolling Stones began Sympathy for the Devil by singing, Please allow me to introduce myself. Many view pop culture as the devil. We want to flip the script of our understanding of pop culture to look closer at what lies behind the music. Consequently, this book will offer sympathy for pop culture, suggesting that God shines through even the most debased pop culture products. Consider this a via pastiva. Now please allow us to introduce ourselves. Wow. So they're dealing with this problem, though. You've got to remember what their problems are. They've got this problem. Atheistic, materialistic determinism is no meaning. They've got to come to a solution. And the solution is a leap of faith. This is their solution. And you've got to go back to a guy named Soren Kierkegaard. He's an existential philosopher. And now we're going to start to see some new names show up. Swedenborg. His influences include Swedenborg, Hegel, Fitch, etc., Swedenborg is interesting because Swedenborg is a spiritualist. This is what Kierkegaard said. The church should not try to prove Christianity or even defend it. That's not what the Bible says. It should help the single individual to make a leap of faith, the faith that God is love and has a task for that very same single individual. Now the Bible says, come, let us reason together. And the Bible says be instant in season, out of season, always having a reason for your belief. But Kierkegaard says no. No, no, no. Let's not have any reason, but let's make a leap of faith. Now this is a blind leap. This is a leap based on absolutely nothing. So that's how you solve the problem of atheistic materialistic determinism is you don't solve the problem, you just make that leap of faith. Um, it's been described this way, as you have this lower room, this room with materialistic determinism. This is the area that they say we live in all day long. This is just the normal thing. But if you want to make that leap of faith, then you get to move. And if you want to use good atheistic kind of language, you'll call it an existentialistic experience. How many of you studied existentialism in school and didn't understand what it was all about? Yeah, I didn't either, okay? But now I'm learning. You have this existentialistic experience. But if you're willing to be more spiritual in your explanation, you could just call it mysticism. It's a mystical experience. Remember that chart with coexist? This is your way into that inner truth. I don't want to waste a lot of time with this other than I want to say this. Look, this is in everything. And here you can have um, good old Oprah Winfrey going to have this Catholic father, Richard Rohr, teach him all about it. And she's so happy that he's going to be there. Um, anyway, Ellen White had this to say, the line of distinction between professing Christians and the ungodly is now hardly distinguishable. Church members love what the world loves and are ready to join with them. And Satan determines to unite them in one body and thus strengthen his cause by sweeping all into the ranks of spiritualism. And Protestants, having cast away the shield of truth, will also be deluded. Papists, Protestants, and worldlings will alike accept the form of godliness without the power. And they will see in this union a grand movement for the conversion of the world and the ushering in of the long-expected millennium. That's the world we're living in. Everybody's coming together around this. The culture... The churches, it's all coming together. And the ushering in of the long-expected millennium, 
man, that's an old belief in America that things are getting better and we're going to have this millennium where Christ is going to reign or there's going to be goodness before Christ comes back. It's not the second coming that's being talked about here. So what's next? I googled around to try to figure out what are they trying to do next. And this was really interesting. This is from one of their more important blogs. Um, and I got this, from emergent church to emergent God. Listen to this. Grounding our lives in the emergent God reminds us humbly that God is the next big thing, not the movement. We discover our meaning and belonging not ultimately through a like-minded cohort or titillating trend, but through our bodies and souls riding the wave of God's emergence. Look at that. It's that whole thing, remember? We're going to go from, from matter to man to spirituality to God. It's the whole thing. They're looking for God's emergence. Ellen White had this to say, and all through my life I've had the same errors to meet, though not always in the same form. In Living Temple, the assertion is made that God is in the flower, in the leaf, and in the sinner. But God does not live in the sinner. The Word declares that He abides only in the hearts of those who love Him and do righteousness. God does not abide in the heart of the sinner. It's the enemy who abides there. So it's interesting. We're going to see a little bit as we go along. And if you come this afternoon... We're going to be talking a lot about Living Temple. I want to end talking about this man, Brian McLaren. Brian McLaren is one of the favorites of Seventh-day Adventism. He's a big leader in the emergent church, and he gets invited a lot to come and speak on our campuses and to, to train people and the likes of that. He's a prominent Christian pastor, author, activist, and speaker, and a leading figure in the emerging church movement. Listen to what he says. What if Jesus' secret message reveals a secret plan? What if he didn't come to start a new religion, but rather came to start a political, social, religious, artistic, economic, intellectual, and spiritual revolution that would give birth to a new world? Wow. Didn't Jesus say, I've spoken nothing to you in secret? I mean, isn't that the clear, thus saith the Lord? Anyone can open that. But Brian McLaren would have him... You have Christ be some kind of a social justice warrior. And you see this all-encompassing thing. It takes it a little bit more in a different direction than the way Christ is leading the church. Perhaps all along, my deepest joy has never been to have all of my dreams come true, but rather to have God's one dream come true. Wait a second. Wait, wait, wait. They're speaking funny again. They're saying God has a dream? Well, you know, God's got plans. You know what God has? He's got a plan. He knows the beginning to the end. He sets up kings. He takes down kings. He has a clear, thus saith the Lord, when he speaks it is. Not some kind of dream. I mean, this guy's like living in, in Disneyland. God's one dream come true, that this world will become a place God is at home in, a place God takes pride and pleasure in, a place where God's dreams come true. He goes on to say this. Isn't it, is it any surprise that it's stinking hard to convince churches that they must have a mission to the world when most Christians equate personal salvation of individual souls with the ultimate aim of Jesus? Is it any wonder that people feel like victims of a bait and switch when they're lured with personal salvation and then hooked with church commitments and world mission? I guess he doesn't believe 
in the Great Commission. It's like he hasn't read it. He's got a completely different idea. And you know, this is important for us. We're Adventists. We have a mission to the world. We are to give the three angels' message. And if we listen to guys like this, guess who isn't going out to do any evangelism? This way of seeing God stands ahead of us in time, at the end of the journey, sending to us in waves, as it were, the gift of the present, an inrush of the future that pushes the past behind us and washes over us to rethink and receive new direction and new empowerment. So God's standing ahead of us, just sending out these waves. This is what he believes. I felt every tree, every blade of grass, and every pool of water become especially eloquent with God's grandeur. Somehow they seemed to become transparent, or perhaps translucent is the better word, because each thing in its particularity was utterly visible and unspeakably important. These specific concrete things became translucent in the sense that a powerful, indescribable, invisible light seemed to shine through. It's getting a little weird, but let's stick with me. It's the exuberant joy of simply seeing these masterpieces of God's creation and knowing myself to be among them. It was to be one of them and to feel and to know that we, all of these creatures, molecules, and phenomena, were together known and loved by God who embraced us all in the ultimate, capital W, we. What is that? That is pure unadulterated pantheism. And I think to myself, huh, we've been here before. We know the truth. Amen? Ellen White had this to say, the sophistries regarding God and nature that are flooding the world with skepticism are the inspiration of the fallen foe who is himself a Bible student, who knows the truth, that it is essential for the people to receive and whose study it is to divert minds from the great truths given to prepare them for what is coming upon the world. You know, brothers and sisters, I firmly believe that the emergent church is a diversion. It's to take our eyes off Christ so that we are not prepared for what is coming upon the world. It's a scheme of the devil as so much of philosophy is. And the Bible has warned us not to be deceived by philosophy. It's this idea that truth is relative. Don't come and stand in the way with your thus saith the Lord. That's what the emergence will tell you. Emergent church is just the same old lie of the devil that he brought with Darwin. This is the outward working of Darwinism. It's just Darwinism applied to spirituality. And it's all designed to bring us all together, all together to one false truth so that we can coexist. Ellen White says this, Be not deceived, many will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. We have now before us the alpha of this danger. She's speaking about living temple. The omega will be of a most startling nature. I'd invite you to come this afternoon. We'll talk about the Alpha a little bit, and we'll talk a little bit more about the emerging church, what it looks like, what it is, 
how it actually interacts with our church at times. So I pray that this has been a blessing. And right now, I'd like to end with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this camp meeting, this place that we can come to learn about you and to learn about the perils that face our church. Lord, I ask each one of us would go away blessed, having learned something that we can share with others. Lord, I pray that your spirit will be with us here, go with us today, and take us about to the different meetings where we can learn what you would have us to learn. We thank you so much for your love. We thank you for the divine word of your scripture. And Lord, we know it to be the truth, a clear, unchanging, thus saith the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.